Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my main source material. In this episode, I'm continuing a four-part series on James Fenimore Cooper's The Pioneers. The Pioneers was the first of the Leatherstocking tales to be written, but the fourth chronologically in terms of the character's life. And it's set over 30 years, almost 40 years after the events of the Pathfinder, which was the the next previous one in terms of the, the, the life of our character. It's set near a fictional town or in a fictional town and in a near a fictional town called Templetown, which is really just a, a thinly veiled uh, parallel for the, the town, Cooperstown. This means that our main character in this novel, Marmaduke Temple, is really none other than William Cooper, the land speculator who founded Cooperstown and became one of the major figures in that area of upstate New York and uh, the father of our author, James Fenimore Cooper. So there is a book essentially about William Cooper and about the origin of Cooperstown, and it's meant to be a work that's kind of looks more broadly at the way the early American frontier worked in the 1780s, uh, 1790s. But it does through really by looking at this one figure of William Cooper. And it's it's none other than Alan Taylor, the great early American historian. And his, novel, or his book is called William Cooper's Town, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early American Republic. It won the Pulitzer Prize. I really recommend this book if you want to understand this period of time. It doesn't engage as much as you might think with the pioneers, although Alan Taylor does mention the pioneers, of course, uh, several times and mentions uh, Cooper's work, James Fenimore Cooper's work, but really it's much more an archival examination, an in-depth look at William Cooper and the act, the, fig- the reality of what was going on in Cooperstown. So it doesn't really need to rely so much on the fictional account, although there's a lot of truth in James Fenimore Cooper's story even to the degree that he's quite critical of of his father through this character, Marmaduke Temple. Now, generally, Marmaduke Temple is a good guy in the novel, but there are moments in which the author is a little more critical of him. But William Cooper is an interesting figure if you want to understand really how land speculation played a role in the development and the kind of the quote-unquote opening up of, of this part of America. And I'll just give you a few passages early on in this this book. It, it's quite long. I mean, it's not a long read. It's 400 pages, but it's history. So you can kind of skip around and, and, and get out of it what you want. You don't have to read every word to get the main gist. But here's what Taylor says about William Cooper. William Cooper was a controversial as well as a commanding figure. Many former friends as well as old rivals eventually concluded that his cunning at speculation and political intrigue exceeded the bounds of genteel respectability. Even Myers Fisher began to suspect that Cooper had cheated him by secretly hoarding the best lands in one of their joint purchases. 
William Cooper became rich, powerful, and famous by attaching himself to the nation's rapid population growth and territorial expansion at the frontier's margins. He benefited from the recent Revolutionary War, which had dispossessed the native inhabitants of New York, the Iroquois tribes. Devastated by American raids in 1779 and abandoned by the British allies in 1783, the Iroquois had to surrender almost all of their homeland. The domains passed first to land speculators such as William Cooper, and then to thousands of settlers whose new farms steadily obliterated the marks of their Indian predecessors. So I'll end right there. None of that is denied by James Fenimore Cooper in the course of the novel. In fact, it's addressed quite directly. So there's not really that much whitewashing going on in this novel. It's not a, a kind of a glowing portrayal of his own father. In fact, this is something Alan Taylor admits. He says, quote, Cooper, now this time I'm talking about James Fenimore Cooper, wrestled with the contradictions and mysteries of his father character, father's character. Impelled by powerful and difficult memories, Cooper cast his father as the novel's Judge Marmaduke Temple, the founder, developer, and ruler of the frontier village of Templeton. Judge Temple is a man of good intentions but loose scruples, of expansive vision but flawed manners, of benevolent paternalism but blunting execution. Temple falls just short of the full gentility and true self-discipline needed to maintain his authority, authority over Templeton's faction, factionist and greedy settlers. So, I mean, Alan Taylor here seems to agree that this is a fairly honest approach towards his father. And, and I just wanted to throw that out there. I just recommend this book strongly. Uh, uh, I mean, I can't praise it highly enough. It won the Pulitzer for good reasons. And it's, it's simply one of the best books about this moment in American history and really connecting the kind of the role of capital and the market but also expropriation, just the, the theft of land and then eventually the theft of wealth by land speculators. The way it, it tended to work is land was divvied out in the West in, you know, huge chunks of land to, to various people for various reasons in the chaos of the Revolutionary War. And then it got sold out based on the value of the land, not fairly. So people who got these huge land grants, you know, were able to basically profit from the division and the divvying up of this land to settlers. And this was only exacerbated by later frontier policy, which sold all the land, like in the Northwest Territories. At, I think it was like a dollar twenty-five an acre, or maybe it was a dollar, and then it was up to a dollar twenty-five later. But all land, regardless of its worth, was sold this cheap, which meant that if you had enough money to buy up a lot of the land, you could then easily profit from the good land. Um, by selling it for much more, selling it at a market value. So basically, the U.S. government was selling this at often under under market value, allowing the speculators to make out like bandits. And then, of course, this is the big part of American history, all the way through the Homestead Act. And, and you know, actually, speculation was almost written into the Homestead Act. And you can actually go back to my early series on Frank Norris and the octopus to see how the Homestead Act eventually screwed farmers out in the West as well by giving so much land to railroads and then forcing farmers to squat on railroad lands. And then when the railroad sold it to these farmers, they sold it at these inflated prices due to the developments that these farmers contributed to the land, not necessarily to improvements made by the railroads themselves. And that's all unveiled in The Octopus by, by Frank Norris. But as we see in this book, William Cooper's Town, this actually has this the, the role of the speculator really has a deeper history in in American uh, in America's story. So, anyways, just going on back to our novel, The Pioneers. 
Now, in the backdrop of our story here is is Danny Bumpo, and he's been here throughout all the Leatherstocking tales. But now he's known as Leatherstocking, and I talked about how he got this Naumaker in the last episode. It really has to do with how these pioneers saw him. He's he's gone from being this frontier hero that we remember from the Pathfinder and you know really a war hero, Last of the Mohicans, and less so in Deerslayer, but in those those two French and Indian War novels, he's really this kind of war hero and well-known among commanders in the British Army, well-feared, well-respected by the Indians, famous, really, among the Indians. He goes from that to being essentially kind of the weird homeless guy who's living on the outskirts of town, living off the land. You know, he's just kind of the weirdo. People know about him and talk about him and gossip about him, but he's kind of seen as a bizarre person. Some people respect him. But by and large, he's been reduced to kind of the nutcase who lives out in the woods. Yet, despite this role, he's the moral center of our story. In this novel, he's going by the name Leatherstocking, and he's around, I think he's 71 years old. He's living off the land, and the frontier is literally marching on past him. The frontier is gone by this point. The, the world that he dwelled in most of his life is gone. And the question overhanging much of this book is, what is the place for someone like Leatherstocking, and why is he even still hanging around? Um, he, leaves at, he leaves this region at the end of the novel, but that's because something is resolved. So there's kind of a mystery that's already hinted at at various times, in the first half of the book, but why is he here? And what's his role in this community? Why does he stick around uh, when so much of his world has changed? Now, Leatherstocking himself has had to come to terms with changes brought on by the pioneers, such as speculators like Marmaduke Temple, the judge. And it's important that he is a judge. Now, of course, William Cooper was a judge too, so he's just a a loose parallel to the real-life figure. But I think it's significant that he's a judge in the sense that he's bringing law which is something that really wasn't a, an issue in the other Leatherstocking tales. Morality certainly was, and virtue, and these kinds of things, but law isn't. And law becomes a major player in, in this novel. Now, Leatherstocking is often accompanied by Indian John, who's none other than Chingachgook, the hero of, or maybe not the hero, but one of the heroic figures of the first three Leatherstocking tales. He's now nominally Christianized, the titular Last of the Mohicans from that novel. He's still around, but now he's kind of taken on a Christian identity, and he goes by the name Indian John. Now, unlike the other stories in our series, this one does not involve conflicts with the French and the Indians. In fact, the Indians that are remaining are, they're really, actually, Chingachgook's the only Indian we really have here. But the French are incorporated into the frontier pioneer society. I keep saying frontier, but really I want to say pioneer society. The largest conflicts in this novel aren't violent. They're really legal. Uh, and, and to the degree we have violence, it's it's the violence of the law. And we'll see examples of that in part four. We got things like an accidental shooting, a poaching case, a police action, a, 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 even a posse comitatus action. But even that's basically a function of the law. Despite lacking the action of the other stories, this story is actually full of drama and mystery. And, you know, it's inter- It's fun to watch our character who's so late in life forced to come to terms with the turning point in, in, in his life and the environment around him. Now, in the first 10 chapters of this novel, not much seems to happen because Cooper spends so much time working on the details of this world that's dynamic and radically changing frontier society. Marmaduke Temple and his daughter are coming to Templetown, and along the way they meet Leatherstocking and a young man named Oliver Edwards. They get into a dispute over who shot a deer, 
but the wounding of Edwards proves that Leatherstocking or his young companion actually was the one who shot the deer because Temple had completely missed the proof being the bullet holes in, in Edwards. To basically make amends for this, Temple takes Edwards to his home in Templetown for medical care. And along the way, we're introduced to the other characters of the town. There's a German um, migrant who's been there for a long time. There's a recent French emigre who's fleeing the Re French Revolution in, in the Caribbean. We have, um, I guess, kind of the, a lot of the people around Temple and his family. We have slaves. It, it is a, still a slave society to some degree, or I guess a society with slaves. I'm not sure how Ira Berlin would define this. There's a historian, Ira Berlin, who famously made distinction between slave societies and societies with slaves in, in American history. And at various times, you might have slavery, but you wouldn't call it a slave society, right? But New York had a lot of slaves in the, you know, until the 1820s. Or till, yeah, until the 1820s. So at this point, there's still a fair number of slaves in New York, and they'll only be phased out very gradually. So you have slaves, uh, free blacks, um, and it's, it's a very diverse character. Immigrants, uh, there's, I think, some Irish there and others. So we get this really interesting uh, pioneer society as we enter the town. Now, it's a diverse cast of characters, uh, to say the least. Rumors spread about Leatherstocking, Indian John and the young man and their relationship and you know, who's whose son and where does this young man come from. But after he's treated, Edward leaves angrily. This is to the surprise of the well-meaning Temple, who doesn't really understand why Edwards is so pissed off at him. And after this, the men in town eat dinner and then prepare to go to church, for it is Christmas Eve. And that's, that's what happens in the first quarter or so of the Pioneer. So let's move on to the next um, section, the next 10 or 11 chapters of, of the Pioneers. So chapter 11, this takes us to the sole interdenominational church in Templeton. It's, it's run by a man named Mr. Grant. He's the town preacher, essentially, and he's servicing people from many different religious backgrounds. The church is segregated by race and gender and class. But much of the town here is here to see the, hear the sermon on, on this important day, Christmas Eve. But we're just get reminded of how divided up this frontier society is. So although it's diverse, with that diversity comes deep divisions. And many of these divisions are rooted in class. And symbolically, Natty and Indian John do come to hear the sermon, but they sit apart from the rest as well. So they're, they're, they almost form a whole other division in society that is the remnants of the frontier. Now, what is Grant's message in his sermon? It's, it's rather interesting. It has to do with, with division. And this is just part of his sermon. Quote, when we consider the great diversity of the human character, influenced as it is by education, by opportunity, and by the physical and moral conditions of the creature, my dear hearers, it can excite no surprise that creeds, so very different in their tendencies, should grow out of a religion revealed, it is true, but whose revelations are obscured by the lapse of ages, and whose doctrines were, after the fashion of the counties, countries in which they were first promulgated, frequently delivered in parallels, and in the language abounding in metaphor and loaded with figures. On points where they have learned, where, where the learned have, in purity of heart, been compelled to differ, the unlettered will necessarily be at variance. But happily for us, my brethren, the fountain of divine love flows from a source too pure to admit of pollution in its course. It extends to those who drink in its vivifying waters, the peace of the righteous and life everlasting. It endures through all time and it pervades creation. 
So there. Diversity is at the root of our preacher's concerns. He preaches for the need for unity. His thinking is probably, as you see, mostly on the unity of theology and concerns about a growing diversity in the religious character of these pioneer towns. But the divisions in the town are so deep that, uh, that we can get a, a broader meaning of this from this talk. Um, but certainly one thing you get out of this church service is the deep cultural class Div gender divisions. And, and that's an interesting thing about this gender. Women were in all the leather stocking tales, but there were anomalies. It was largely a male environment and a woman being there was odd um, or there for special circumstances. The Hutter children were there because their, her father was basically on the run. He was a pirate. He wasn't even really their father, but kind of a stepfather. In Last of the Mohicans, you know, it was, it was you know, a life and death thing to bring two women to see their father in a fort. And in the Pathfinder, it's a very special case, too, the father bringing the daughter there to marry a man. So the women were there as an anomaly. Here, they're, they're, they're there as part of the, the front pioneer society. So then chapter 12, the church service ends and people eventually go their separate ways. Natty goes off one way. Um, but only after he talks a little bit about the religious views. It's nothing new to people who have come this far along in the leather stocking tales, but there are, it, it's, youth, it's worth revisiting a little bit what his religious perspective is. Well, he was raised by Morvarians, as, as we know, and John was sort of Christianized by the Morvarians. And, but Natty doesn't read and he doesn't read the Bible. And so his real religious experiences come through what he's heard, but also through his experience in the woods. And he kind of goes back on this issue. And there's a question about the youth, the, this Oliver Edwards he's with and what his, what's his religious background. And Grant kind of inquires about this and he's curious about these things. Now, Natty at this point says he's going to go back to his, his wigwam, basically back to his house. But he actually shows up later on at the bar. So it's... Uh, I'm, I'm not quite clear. I don't quite remember what happened that brought him there. But, you know, these these novels can get a bit dense. But basically, they after this little talk about the religion of these, of Oliver and Natty and, and Chingachgook, the groups break up. And one group is made up of Oliver Edwards, John Mohegan, Chingachgook, Grant, and Grant's daughter. And they, they're basically walking home together. And Oliver confesses at this point, which kind of adds some twist to the mystery that's been floating around by, by admitting that he has Delaware blood. There's been questions been asked by characters, what is this guy's background? He just kind of shows up out of nowhere in the woods. And so the, the theory is that he's, you know, an Indi half Indian. And he says he is, has Delaware blood here. Now, what he doesn't, we'll learn later the reality of his heritage. And there's a meaning to him saying he's part Delaware, but it's not really a biological thing. It's, it's more cultural, as it turns out. But it's introduced here as deepening this mystery of Oliver's background. Oliver Edwards makes a bold statement about Temple during this conversation. And it's it builds to another mystery, which is why does Oliver Edwards seem to hate Temple so much? And he basically comes out and accuses Temple of being greedy, of seeking only gold, and lacking a true moral character. He says, quote, the wolf of the forest is not more uh, rapturous for his prey than that man is greedy of gold, and yet his gildings into wealth are subtle as the movements of a serpent. And Mr. Grant at this point stops and says, sort of chill out, you know, Temple's a good man. 
and he goes and he talks about something about how you know he helped fix up your arm and things and you know don't think too bad about him and his response is this this arm think you sir that i believe the man a murderer oh no he's too wily too cowardly for such a crime but let him and his daughter ride in their wealth a day of retribution will come no 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 it is for mohegan to suspect him of intent to injure me but the trifle is not worth the second thought ah so the deep hostility that seems to be coming out of nowhere from the perspective of the people of Templetown, at least. Also discussed in this chapter is Chingachgook's Christianity and how deep it runs. The entire question of how Christian the Indian can become is also explored here. And finally, we get a little bit more thoughts on the violence of the frontier and the divisions of the violence between the Indians and the pioneers. And I sort of just alluded to it in the way Oliver Edwards talks about the true nature of 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 edwards it kind of comes down to like where the use of violence for the frontier violence is real it's scalping it's getting tomahawked it's getting shot the violence of the front of the pioneer society is much more about wealth and law and property and shenanigans and commercial dealings and all this stuff so that's that's the heart of edwards critique of of temple so it's a really fascinating chapter that's thematically rich so it's, it's, it's worth taking a closer look at. Then we move on to chapter 13. And this, along with chapter 14, are, are in one setting. And it's all in a bar, a tavern called the Bull Dragoon Tavern. And, you know, what I haven't really talked much about these, but Cooper begins every chapter in all, almost all of his works, uh, in the Eleven Stocking Tales and in the Sea Tales, which I started looking at. He starts each chapter with a quote from literature. And in these two chapters, he opens with passages from the song, The Barley Moan. That's what I use to open and close my episodes on. I'll, I'll do it for at least this novel uh, and the next one if I can't think of something better to use. So this song existed in the 1820s, at least when Cooper was writing, if not by the, in the 1790s when it's set. Music actually plays a, a relatively significant role in this, unlike in the, Leatherstock, the other Leatherstocking tales where music is not part of it. You have, like, I guess, Gamut, David Gamut, but him singing and music in the frontier setting is weird. It's off because you're not supposed to sing. It announces your position. And it's just bad luck. And Indians thought he was insane, literally thought he was insane for singing so much. But here in the Pioneer Society, music is just part of life and people are singing all the time. It's rather a, a fun aspect of it. But anyways, these two chapters, 13 and 14, are all set in the Bull Dragoon Tavern. It's run by Captain Holister, who actually has like revolutionary fame, and he got famous. He had some wealth from the revolution, so he started up this bar. He runs the local militia, so he uses his position as a war hero to start the local militia. So mostly what you get out of these chapters is gossip and chit-chatting and a lot of fun conversations. It's enjoyable to read. It doesn't advance the plot so much, but it's just more about the setting and the characters and just the the, the feeling of, of how dynamic and interesting this, this pioneer society can be. The gossip in this chapter range is very far and wide. They talk about the sermon. They talk about war. They talk about biblical. They actually have a conversation about biblical literacy or literal, um, biblical literacy. Sorry, I'm bouncing on the word I'm looking for here. 
biblical literalism, I guess is, is what I mean. Uh, but I guess biblical literacy is part of it, but it's biblical literalism. You know, how literal should we take the lessons of the Bible? And they even debate that. But mostly they're just getting drunk and they're drinking. It's a really fun chapter that gives us just more of a sense of this very mixed but very divided um, culture and how flexible these customs can be and, you know, just how everything is getting kind of mixed up in this setting. But we're also reminded to some degree that these these customs of, of this society are reinforcing class divisions that pre-exist. Quote, Toasts were uniformly drunk, and occasionally someone who conceived himself particularly well endowed by nature to shine in the way of wit would attempt some s such sentiment as hoping that he who treated might make a better man than his father or live till all his friends wished him dead. While the other humble pot companion contended himself by saying with the most imposing gravity in his air, come here's luck or by expressing some other equally comprehensive wish. In every instance, the veteran landlord was requested to imitate the customs of the cupbearers to kings and taste the liquor he presented by the invitation of after you his manners, with which request he ordinarily complied by wetting his lips, first expressing his hope of here's hoping, leaving it to the imagination of the hearer to fill the vacuum of whatever good, good each ever thought most desirable. During these movements, the landlady was busily occupied with mixing the various compounds required by our customers. So the point here being is that there seems to be a little bit of social deference involved in some of these customs of drinking. Now, of course, they're also gossiping about Natty and Edwards. And finally, they come down to this theme of law and order and Natty's place in this maturing civilization. And that's sort of where the chapter ends coming back to this question of law one of the characters even says quote i hopes lather stocking ye be no foolish in putting the boy up to try the law in this manner he's talking about here the being shot or the deer or something for twill be an evil day to you both when ye first turn the skin so peaceful an animal as to sheep into a bone of contention the lad is welcome to his drink for nothing until the shoulder will bear the rifle again End quote. So he's saying, don't you try to test the law because you'll fail. Again, you know, someone who's been left behind by the advance of civilization will not be able to keep up with, with law. But I think this is a general argument we can make. The anthropologist David Graeber wrote a book not long ago, a couple years, uh, called The Utopia of Rules. And he talked about bureaucracy in this way. And I think we can apply it to law more broadly. To people who don't understand law, or do people still understand bureaucracy and the rules that make a society run, it can feel like a tool of oppression in a way, partially because people are ignorant of it. And he compares this to patriarchy, you know, that sometimes men are blinkered by patriarchy because they don't realize that the whole system is structured against women. But women feel this every day, right? And he actually says that men who don't understand patriarchy should consider what it's like when they go to the DMV or something or, or inter interact with bureaucracies more generally. That you, the way you feel blindsided and the way you feel you have to talk their language and the way you feel stupid all the time next to a bureaucrat. This is how patriarchal societies make women feel. And it's a really interesting idea. And I think that's, that's what happens eventually to Natty with the law is he just doesn't really comprehend how law functions in this world. And and he's being warned here, like, don't try to test the law. Well, chapter 14 just picks up really the same setting. You didn't really need to have a chapter break here, but 
Cooper just sort of throws them in sometimes. Um, sometimes for good reasons, but often it's just to, you know, I guess to break them up into bite-sized bits. Uh, the scene continues on as they drink. They talk about business. They talk about Natty's place in the law some more. They talk about the ecology of the region, which is going to be a big theme in, in the second half of the novel. They also they get news about the French Revolution. It's shared. And there's some misgivings by drinkers about the French Revolution. Now, Mohegan comes into the tavern now. So Natty's already been there, but Mohegan comes in and he begins drinking with the others and he starts to get progressively more drunk. Natty has been there and they start to talk to the Mohegan in Delaware, which is really great, where they start to talk in uh, Delaware language about like old war stories. No one else really can understand them, but they're talking and you see the characters getting progressively more drunk. These are uh, splendidly fun chapters. Cooper is going slowly and you really get the slow burn. But the more I think about it, I, I think all his novels had this, you know, the Deerslayer, like all the action is is reserved for the end. Yeah, you have these chases, and The Last of the Mohicans, too, has this. But he tends to do this very patient storytelling, which I think was just common among romantics of the time. But here it's all so much fun and, and wonderful. This is this is really emerging as maybe my favorite of the other stocking tales, just for the the way he he gets at the divisions and the complexity and the just kind of the fun aspects of, of life in these pioneer towns. We enjoy every moment of what Cooper delivers to us as we begin to think that what Natty lost in the frontier may not be as valuable as what replaces it, at least not in some degrees. We actually do see it's a very flawed community. It's very divided. It's based on slavery and oppression and and theft, the theft from the Indians, most, most uh, dominantly, but also the theft from pioneers who get taken advantage of by speculators. But a new community is being created in the midst of all of this. And then we get to chapter 15. This is our final scene of Christmas Eve, which has been everything up to this point. It's all, this is all within, within 24 hours. So we have a, um, this is kind of a different group. So that's basically Elizabeth. She doesn't hang out with the boys after the church service. She goes straight to the temple mansion. And so this is about Elizabeth and the servants of the home. So remarkable Pettibone, who's kind of the, the maid in the temple home and Ben Plum, who's like the major domo, basically the, the male servant of Temple. They're just hanging out and they have nothing to do because Temple's off drinking. So they get drunk and they enjoy their Christmas merriment. And Pump, he was a British sailor before, so he goes on these long rants about being a British, about time in the British Navy. They bicker and they quarrel and eventually the two servants pass out. A few hours later, so it shows you how late into the night Temple was with you know at the pub, he finally comes back with the other people who are at the tavern and, and the night finally comes to a close. It's, you know, we can imagine it's like two in the morning at that point. So that's what happens in chapter 15. Chapter 16, not that much happens. I, you can kind of presume everyone's sort of hung over except Elizabeth. But we do get some interesting elements in this chapter about the creation of Temple Town into a proper town with proper infrastructure and proper positions and they talk about building turnpipes richard jones who's kind of the business partner of temple he's the one who designed the house he's been kind of the right hand man of temple throughout he's been given a position basically a commission by temple to be the sheriff of the town and we get you know 
the things that need to be done, you know, like building turnpikes, building roads, connecting the Temple Town to other communities, to New York City eventually, maybe to the Hudson River. I'm not to Albany. We get side notes about urban planning of the town even. And, and so there's all this thought going into the future of this town. It's there, there, this is really presented as the opening stage of what's going to be a dynamic community. So I think at this point they go off, they're going off to like a turkey shoot kind of game. It's a Christmas um, hair, no, no, no open presents. I guess this is before Christmas presents. They had Santa Claus. Santa Claus was talked about in earlier chapters, but no presents. But so they're off walking to this place. And so we get this mentioning of how they're talking about the things that need to be done. Quote, during this dialogue, as the parties had kept in motion, Richard and his cousin advanced some distance from the house into the open space in the rear of the village. Whereas it may be gathered from the conversation, streets were planned and future dwellings contemplated. But where in truth, the only, the only mark of improvement was to be seen was the neglected clearing along the skirt of a dark forest of mighty pines over which the bushes and sprouts of the same tree had sprung up. So yeah, it's it's still very frontierish, but we're we're promised a future roads and buildings and communities and neighborhoods emerging in these places that were once wilderness. And certainly ecology is a major theme of this book. So anyways, as I said, the group's heading out for an annual tradition, which is the Christmas Day turkey shoot. And along the way, they run into Natty and Indian John. And John gives us yet another grievance that the Indians have against the whites who move onto the land. Um, and that is about how they introduce alcohol. And that, that's something that's been in a couple of the Leatherstocking tales, most predominantly with the character of Magua in Last of the Mohicans, the villain there who was, who was angry at whites for turning him into an alcoholic, which led him to being kicked out of his tribe and lost, losing his wife. So we get a nice little custom here though of this turkey day shoot so chapter 17 is essentially about the turkey day shoot it's held on the land of a free black man named abraham freeborn um, the contest has an entrance fee which is something natty why natty can't participate i've just got to point out here that these novels always have to have a shooting contest and i, I haven't quite finished I, i've actually just started the prairie at the time i'm recording this but, and i you know i, I I'm willing to bet money there's a shooting contest in that one. Um, the Deerslayer had one which was more informal. Um, the Pathfinder had a formal shooting contest. Um, and then this has this this turkey shoot. Basically, you, you pay the fee and then you try to shoot a turkey from 100 yards. And if you can kill it, you get the turkey. So it's, it's kind of a, a skill lotter, skill-based lottery. The tradition is a chance for the community to come together and for the talented to trump uh, for talent to trump status. It's really one of the only times in the novel in which talent does really trump status. You know, this is a civilized society that's emerged here. So status is what matters. Wealth and property is what matters. But there's still memories of the frontier era when talent can still dominate. We're introduced to a very interesting side character who doesn't get much screen time in this novel, but his name is Billy Kirby. And he's kind of a, a frontier, presented almost like a frontier troublemaker. Quote, he was a noisy, boisterous, reckless lad with good nature eye, contradicted the bluntness and bullying tenure of his speech. For weeks, he would lounge around the taverns of the country in a state of perfect idleness or doing small jobs for his liquor and his meals and cavilling with applicants about the prices of his labor, frequently preferring idleness to the abatement of a title, tittle of his independence or a cent of his wages. 
end quote. Yeah, he's not a fully unattractive character. In a way, he's he's seeking the independence that someone like Nanny Bumpo has, but he he has to do it from the context of society, and so he becomes like the idle handyman, you know, guy who'll be there if you need a job done. But mostly, he wants to drink and and just go through life he doesn't want to be bound to employment or rents or these kinds of or, or labor uh, but he's only in the story briefly and he loses the contest he fails to others fail too, and eventually elizabeth pays the entry fee for natty and natty of course easily kills the turkey and uh, but elizabeth having paid the fee has the right to the turkey elizabeth worried about the ongoing conflict between oliver edwards and her father gives olive oliver the Turkey as a peace offering. So then we get to chapter 18, and we, we start to get into a series of chapters that really begin to explore the major theme of this novel, which is sustainability, the overuse of nature's bounty, and kind of the wastefulness and aggressive misuse of nature by the pioneers. Now, we've seen Natty kill twice in this book, the deer and the turkey, but he's a responsible killer. Now, he only kills what's needed, and we don't know at this point that he's, he kills more than what he needs for personal survival because he's caring for other people. And that, that's a bit of a spoiler alert, but you know these books are really old, so I, I think that's okay. He, it appears he's killing more than he needs, but he, in fact, he is helping, you know, he's caring for others. But others, Bentley, mis, misuse and overuse nature. And it's... Now, it's Natty who ends up getting punished for this, for poaching, but it's actually everyone else who's a much more violent misuser of it. The market is much more devastating to nature than the poacher, but it's the poacher is the one who's, who's violated uh, by the law. And this is actually debated a little bit by the judge in Leatherstocking. And here's what, here's what the Leatherstocking says. He says, no, no, judge. Take him into your shanty and welcome, but tell the, the truth. I have lived in the woods for 40 long years, and I've spent five at a time without seeing the light of a clearing, bigger than a window row in the trees. I should like to know where you'll find a man in the 68th year who can get an easier living for all your betterments and all your dear laws, and as for honesty or doing what's right between man and man. I'll not turn my back to the longest-winded deacon on your patent. And then... Temple says, Thou art an exception, Leatherstocking, for thou hast a temperance unusual in thy caste, and a hardihood exceeding thy years. But this youth is made of materials too precious to be wasted in the forest. Now, partially the context here is, is this desire to get Oliver Edwards kind of into Temple's service. Temple's trying to gather up allies. Um, but there's this subtext in this conversation, it seems to me, about, you know, misuse of nature and the possibility of living sustainably in nature and the value of that kind of life. Uh, the urban folks maybe say, oh, it's okay for you because you don't know any better, but young people need to grow up civilized. And we'll learn in the upcoming chapters that this really means violating nature very aggressively. So, in the context of this, Oliver Edwards has offered up Richard Jones's old job as basically the judge's private personal secretary and, and, and you know, helper, servant, but more on the business side, servant. He's got the other day-to-day -day servants and slaves for that. And he eventually accepts, but he doesn't want to. He hesitates. And this reinforces the idea that there's a bit of hostility between Marmaduke Temple and Oliver Jones, which still isn't explained. 
John thinks he refused simply because he's half Indian and therefore half wild. But eventually, the three woodsmen depart together. Oliver talks about he really doesn't want to work with the enemy, but Chingachgook and Natty convince him that, you know, it's, it's not going to be that bad. So that ends chapter 18. Chapter 19, Christmas Day ends. Um, so this is kind of the second day went a little bit faster than the first than the first day. But they talk about the weather. You know, maybe the most interesting thing here is Miss Grant, Louisa Grant and Elizabeth, the two women we really meet in this novel, are talked about and contrasted to each other. And Miss Grant ends up kind of becoming part of the Temple household after Christmas. Really, this chapter is mostly putting this long prologue of his tale, this kind of Christmas setting to to rest. And at the end of this chapter, he rapidly advances three months. And all these changes, I guess, are, di are digested by the reader and by Cooper himself. Templetown continues, though, to grow and prosper throughout the, the end of the winter and the spring. The village was alive with business, the artisans increasing in wealth with the prosperity of the county and country, and each day witnessing some near approach to the manners and usages of the old settled town. The man who carries the mail, or the post was called, talked much of running a stage, and once or twice during the winter, he was seen taking a single passenger in his cutter through the snowbanks towards the Mohawk, along with the regular vehicle glided semi-weekly with the velocity of lightning, and under the direction of the knowing whip from the down countries. Towards spring, divers families who had been in the old states to see their relatives returned in time to save the snow, frequently bringing with them whole neighborhoods who were tempted by their representations to leave the farms of Connecticut and Massachusetts to make a trial for fortune in the woods. During all this time, Oliver Edwards' sudden elevation excited no surprise, was earnestly engaged in the service of Marmaduke during the days, but his nights were spent in the hunt of leather stocking. So... Time moves forth and the, there's always progress. There's always advancement. Now, how you want to quantify that and value it morally is, is still an open question. But the material progress of this pioneer town is, is pushed along. Chapter 20 focuses mostly on the commercialization of the lands around, around Templeton. And one way we learn that money is made from the forests and one way the forests are commodified and how nature is turned into a commodity. That's what this chapter is essentially about. How do you transform nature, the wild, into profit, into capital, and into commodities? This, you know, it happens throughout American history. The beaver was turned into a commodity. The woods of New England were turned into commodities. Uh, people were turned into commodities through the slave trade. So again and again, this is a common narrative, but the transformation of the wild into commodities is a central dilemma of environmental history. And this is presented as clear in economic and social progress for the people of Templetown. But here the specific example we get is the making of maple sugar and turpentine and maple syrup from the forests. Um, we even get a like, so there's different discussions about, uh, by different characters about how the trees are, how the sap is turned into maple sugar, the different processes. Temple is introduced to new methods to produce maple sugar. We even get a nice song sung to the tune of Yankee Doodle about maple, sugar, maple syrup and maple sugar. Yet the judge does present some concerns about the consequences of, of progress. He says, It grieves me to witness the extravagance that pervades this 
country where the settlers trifle with the blessings they might enjoy with the progeny of successful adventurers. You are not exempt from this censure yourself, Kirby, for you make dreadful wounds of these trees where a small incision would affect the same object. I earnestly beg that you remember that there are gross in centuries where once gone none living will see their loss remedied. Well, I guess Kirby comes back. Um, I, I forgot that he was reintroduced from time to time, but um, he's working in the, the production of maple maple syrup. But it's a, it's a nice window into this question of the transition of nature into commodities. And Temple makes a case here for sustainability and sustainable progress. You know, maybe by using the trees different, you can get syrup from them without necessarily killing the trees. And then chapter 21, I'll end here today. Been going on for quite a while in this episode, up to 50 minutes almost. But here, Cooper, really, everything in this chapter 21 is about the cost of progress, its setbacks, and its limits. Cooper describes the coming of the roads to the region. Temple remembers times when the land were more wild and fragile. He even mentioned the famine that hit Templetown in its early days. But progress has been so rapid that people forgot this. And part of this progress is due to land speculation, bringing in people. But people had forgotten uh, the time and the, the time before this progress and how famine hit this time. And we're, we're told that with progress comes a forgetfulness about the time before. And then our eyes become direct. Literally, Cooper takes our eyes to the hut of Leatherstocking as this conversation is going on as a symbol of the pre-pioneer days. And Natty is actually talked about as a threat to this entire idea of land ownership in this area. And this is an important point because Natty, by not quite fitting into pioneer society, is presenting himself as an alternative. And he's essentially a squatter on land that presumably is owned by Temple. And here's what Temple says. He says, it has been mine for several years. It was with a view to people of the land that I visited the lake. Natty treated me hospitably, but coldly, I thought. And he learned the nature of my journey. I slept in my own bare skin, however, and in the morning, journeying to my surveyors again. Join my surveyors again. He said nothing of the Indian land rights, sir. The leather stocking is much given to impeach the justice of the tenure by which the whites hold this country. So let me just stop there. He, Natty pointed out that the whites' claim to this land is suspect because Indians have better claims. And so Natty's presence is. He remembers, the t that's the point, he remembers the time when Indians controlled this land. And he can be there, someone who can question the legitimacy of these land claims being made by um, people like Temple. So we're halfway through the pioneers at this point. And there's a, a few mysteries we need to work out. Most importantly, why does Edward seem to hate Temple, who doesn't seem to be a bad guy? He, he seems to be on the right side of a lot of issues. And, but thematically, we have so much to talk about here um, by the halfway point of this novel. We have the diversity of pioneer society. We have class. We have class hierarchy. We have the whole question of progress in institutions and infrastructure and memory and, and how progress erases memory. That, that really is why Natty needs to be in the story. You could probably tell the story without Natty Bumpo in it at all. You know, he does play kind of a plot role in the end, but he could just be anyone. He needs to be here because he's the memory of the time before empire had come or before the American empire had come. 
but progress being defined really by infrastructure and institutions, but that these institutions tended to erase. And the most important of these institutions being private property and land ownership and the speculator. Ecology is certainly talked about and sustainability. And it's just amazing how modern this, some of these passages read to us um, as we have our own concerns about, is it possible to have sustainable development? Can we have economic growth without destroying forever our ecology? Um, these are profound questions we're, we're facing today, and it's, it's wonderful to read a writer from the early 19th century talking to us in language that uh, will, is still significant to us. Certainly speculation is an issue. Customs come up again. We, you know, especially how the customs harken back to frontier days, you know, especially the turkey shoot, I think is a good example of that. Um, so these are just some of the themes that are introduced. It's really a wonderful novel. I, I can't recommend this highly. I, I know most people, if they read one leather stocking tale, it's less than the Mohicans. I would say now it should be the pioneers. Uh, so I'm saying that without having yet finished the prairie yet, but you know, this is, the most relevant to us, I said, I would say. So that does it with for part two of the pioneers. Sorry for keeping you so long this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can contact me right on the Podbean or on you can leave a review on iTunes or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Um, and with that, we'll be back with part three of, of the pioneers. Thanks again for, for listening. Here's good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel, half barrel gallon, half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a jill, quarter jill, never get out around bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the landlord, daughter.